Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Thank you for your support, and enjoy the show. All right. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Industry Standard with uh, yours truly. Um, as true to form, every single podcast, I like to tell a little story about something that relates to myself or the guest or in some way. And in the case of my guest today, um, this is a guy who... Um, was very uh, inspirational for me because he essentially gave me the opportunity to be an executive producer on a television show uh, called Action that was a, a really groundbreaking show uh, that I um, I loved. And, and he gave me a chance to be an executive producer with Joel Silver, the late Ted Demme, um, Don Rio, who had created so many shows and worked, I think, on Gleason and, and then Chris Thompson, who was a, a tortured genius. And, and here I was, you know, on a series. I, I didn't even know what an executive producer technically was, but he, he gave me an opportunity, uh, to do something that I always wanted to do. And everybody there treated me like I belonged. Uh, it was an incredible feeling. Um, and there's so many stories about the show and so many crazy things that happened because you were dealing with a lot of people who were uh, volatile, creative types. Some of them were in and out of rehab. 
writers who were literally uh, looked like they were near death uh, on many occasions. Uh, and it was coffee and cigarettes all the time. And, and they brought on Don Rio to sort of stabilize things because Chris Thompson, the creator, was going back and forth from another show that he created that got on the air called Ladies Man with Alfred Molina. And here was a, a, a multi-camera show for CBS, a mainstream show that he was doing on one side of the studio. And then he'd walk across the way and be doing this groundbreaking, edgy show that really belonged on cable for Fox. So Don was brought on because there was so much, you know, so many of these writers looked like you literally thought you were going to an AA meeting when you walked in the writer's room. And Don was this like, he was like a rock, you know, he was this guy who'd he'd seen everything, done everything. And, and, he, and he was a dark soul too, but he just had this thing like when he stepped on the, the stage, it was like there was a new sheriff in town and everybody respected Don Rio. But, you know, Jay Moore was a guy who there was always no filter. And <laughs> Jay would uh, sit down and have conversations with people. And, you know, he just was a ball buster. So it's like Don Rio is, I think it's like his first day on the set. And um, I'm sitting there and, um, introduced myself to Don and Jay introduced my, himself to Don. It's good to have you here. And, um, uh, listen, Don, I've done, a, you know, I, I, I'm amazed at what you've done. I mean, you worked on like the, you know, Gleason show. You toured with Slappy White when you were 17 years old. You wrote jokes. You, you, uh, basically hitchhiked down to a, a club he was working to in Rhode Island he can, he told you he wanted you on the road with him. You were working the Apollo Theater with Slappy White when you were 17. Um, you've created amazing shows, worked on all these amazing shows, and now you're doing this. Uh, ah, it's incredible. But, um, you know, Blossom. I mean, you created Blossom with Mayim Bialik. I mean, what were you thinking? And Don leans his chair over and it takes a moment to stare Jay down. And he says, Jay, um, I own about 64 acres in Hana in Hawaii. I have a beautiful house there and you can only get there if you take a helicopter from the airport. So, Jay, go fuck yourself. Here we go in three, two. There ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. Infections caused by jacuzzi water. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Now, out of the air! 
people on Twitter have been asking for Barry Katz to come back a lot. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in showbiz and you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. Here we go. You're fucking firing me up, Katz. Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Undeniable. Creating holy shit moments. I love this man. Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. All right. My guest today, uh, I am incredibly excited about having him here because uh, he's one of the most respected uh, executives in the television business. Um, you know, I first knew him when he was the president of uh, Columbia TriStar, the merge with Sony. Um, I knew him when he then went to Michael Ovitz's uh, company, uh, ATG, and I've also known him throughout incarnations of having his own company, partnering with Mitch Hurwitz, who created a Arrested Development, and um, and him and his wife um, have their own company, and um, now they are uh, executive producers of, for the past 10 years of probably one of the most successful shows on television, uh, Two and a Half Men. Please welcome everybody, uh, a guy who really... Uh, helped me uh, a lot in my career, Eric Tannenbaum. Thank you very much for having me, Barry. It's a pleasure to be here. Nice to see you as always. All right. We got a lot to talk about. <laughs> uh, I wanted to just start with like uh, something that I thought was really would be really beneficial to people because I want to know, like, take me back like a while ago before you were ever in this business. Tell me what you were doing before the instinct came over you like, Hey, I'd like to be in the entertainment business. Tell me like, was there a job you were doing or you in some shitty job and you were like, uh, God, I got to get into this business. And how did you, how did you make your way into your first job in the business? And what was that? Uh, brings back memories is looking out of your office. I'm looking up where I grew up, which is Beverly Hills, not that far. And I, and, uh, my dad was in the business for years. I don't know if you ever knew my dad, uh, but he was one of sort of the pioneer executives. He was the head of many studios. And when I was a kid, I was, now I am old, but I'm I know, not but you're I have gout. I have gout right now, so pretty much I shouldn't have your dad. Um, and I and you grew up in Beverly Hills. I did, and and, and you went to Beverly Hills High, high school? school. Looking at it right now. Um, wow. And so when my dad was at places like Paramount and Universal and did shows like Kojak and the Brady Bunch and the Odd Couple. I never really knew what he did, but I remember going to the set of the Brady Bunch and seeing that staircase that led to nowhere and being in the house and meeting all those people. And I loved the odd couple as a kid for whatever reason. And, uh, you know, it was sort of always in, in, in the blood of the family, but I never really truly understood what it meant or what he did because he wasn't the kind of guy to, to talk a lot about it. In those days, there was three networks and four studios, and he was one of the heads of those places. And, and yet, so I, I kind of grew up around it. Always thought I was going to be in some capacity. He desperately did not want me to be in the entertainment business. He begged me to go be a lawyer, do anything but. Why, why was that? I, just because he knew, you know, he wouldn't come home and talk about it. But he just knew how hard it was, you know, and he just knew that, it, you know, it's a, mostly as you and I know, a business of disappointment and failure. You're always pushing <laughs> rocks up a hill, and just we're going to talk a lot about right. Those but that's the nature of our business, and and the, the survivors. And I think he was one of them, you know, and he, and he was in lots of different jobs pick themselves off and dust themselves off. And, and he was a salesman, which is what you've been for your life and what I've been in, in different versions too. And he knew how to deal with people. And I think that is kind of the core of what we've both done for all of our business. You, you treat people well. Everybody liked my dad. Um, always said good things about him. But again, until I got a little bit older. And so when I came back in between college, I went to school back east. I worked at Way Morris one summer. 
And what did you do with William Morris? In the mail, in the mail room. And, uh, Talk know, we, about the mail room at William Morris, because for those of you who don't know, I, I, I remember a guy, a, a producer that I, uh, I knew in New York. His name was Bill Persky. Oh, sure. Famous and, writer. And he's a famous writer, and he created, I believe, Kate, Kate and Alley. And he was a friend of my dad's. And um, I once talked to him because he told me that he started in the William Morris mailroom. And the, and the mailroom was it was like a, a breeding ground for some of the greatest people in the business. And he told me that on the set of um, Kane and Alley, um, two of the people from the mailroom that used to deliver scripts to him um, on the set were Barry Diller and Michael Ovitz. And he told me that even then at like 21 year old kids, they scared him. <laughs> you know, they, he could tell that they were going to be somebody who was going to do great things. And here you are, you worked in the mailroom and you did what, great. What things. I quickly found out is that I did not want to be an agent, but what I did find out is you were exposed to the, like was the epicenter. I mean, they were, it was the place and there was all the, some people in the mailroom were 35 and 40 years old who had multiple college degrees and PhDs and doctors and gave it up to make $300 a week to go deliver mail to people. Um, so you got to meet everybody. You got a sense of what everybody did. And there was all these departments. And I'd seen some of the higher up people there because my friends of my dad's that I met over the years, but it had really no idea what they did. But all of a sudden you're exposed to this great amount of activity and information and, and things. And I quickly decided it'd be much more fun to be what they called was dispatch. And dispatch was the guys that got to go with it, you know, drive around and take the scripts to people. But you also realize you were taking a lot of personal packages to stars and talent. You're meeting people and knocking on their door at all hours of the night. And so it was crazy. And then many people that I did this sort of internship are, are now still in this business in different capacities. And there's one agent today who will go nameless that was banned from the Disney lot because he shot a rubber band at the security guard. I mean, it was just all craziness and fun. As a Tell me some of the uh – big stars that you delivered scripts to and like it might be like three in the morning or something tell me some of the people that you remember like you're like holy shit i can't believe that i get to deliver to this guy i remember some of the charlie's angels i remember uh david hasselhoff i remember like you know those kinds of like tv stars were iconic people and a lot of times you had to get through someone to get through someone to get to a third person but it was just crazy. And for a young kid who never done this, and so you're meeting and you're going to all the studios and you're going to all these directors and producers and stars' house. And it was just a fascinating experience. But what it, it the, the knowledge it gave me was, okay, I now can you start asking that question? I understand what an agent's role was, what a studio's role was, what a producer's role was. And all of a sudden you're starting to put, you know, someone have never had no experience to start to connect the dots and put the pieces together. That was my first summer job. My next real job was uh, when I graduated college. I didn't, you know, I knew I wanted to do something. And uh, my dad had a very dear friend named Ned Tannen who was deceased, but he was one of the, the great film executives of, of all time and a, and a lovely man. And I, I went to his office. I drove out there and he's like, okay, great. You, you know, you need to learn what happens on a set. And so he literally, like, you literally you leave in two days. And like two days later, he sent me to Florida to work on a very bad movie called The Whoopie Boys. Um, that was, I don't even know if it was ever released. Um, in Florida, and I was going to be a PA, and basically you're working to 18 to 20 hours a day. Explain to the audience what a PA does, because the PA on a movie set and a, a television set, it's one of the few things that are almost exactly the same. So uh, My first job was uh, to basically do anything they told me to do, but this movie starred Paul Rodriguez, who went on to be a friend of mine, who was a famous comedian, but kind of a crazy guy at the time, the height of his fame, was to have to find him in the middle of the night, because... He'd have to be taken to the set at five in the morning. He was just getting home. So you'd be what, in which club and I have to go find him at these play. I'd never been to Florida in my life. So now I'm trying to 
drive, navigate my way around Miami, finding out where Paul's going to be or whose bed he's going to be in or which place he's going to come from. Um, there was a, an, a comedian actress named Marshall Warfield who was at the time on night court and, and no, you know, no one could find her. And so basically my job was having to round up the cast and wake them up at four or five in the morning, which is none too pleasant to try to get them down to the set. Um, and then it's anything from copying scripts to getting food for the directors and, uh, the director's girlfriend was in it at the time and they were always fighting. It was just one of those kind of places, but I, I met a few producers that I liked and, uh, people throughout and I just, I learned now, okay, now what it's like to be on a set. You learn what, you know, who's really in charge, looking at how many, you know, what the script is and how it's changing and, and, and watching all that kind of stuff. And I then realized I, I didn't really want to be on a set every day. That wasn't necessarily the thing for me unless I was really going to be in a position of having some control. So that for me was like, you know, goal number one. And I came back after that and, and looked for jobs and looked for jobs. And fortunately, through a series of connections, but also a friend of my dad's, um, he sent me over to a fledgling company called New World Entertainment. And there was a young guy there who had just taken over the TV company named John Feldheimer, um, who fortunately for me ended up becoming a, a, a quasi-brother and a mentor and a father figure for me. And I ended up working with him for almost 20-some-odd years. And John now uh, runs uh, – well – He's the chairman of Lionsgate. Chairman of Lionsgate. You know, and the stock just hit a record-breaking number, and he's one of the great executives in the business. And I literally started by, you know, he says, yeah, yeah I'll find something for you. And he says, kind of just go sit over here in the corner. And uh, I took his clean into the laundry. I got his cars washed. I made sure, you know, that his flowers were in his house and all that kind of stuff. And slowly over the course of time, as I was just sitting around his office, he would say, He'd throw a script at me. He'll just read this and tell me what to think about it. Or, you know what, can you just call this guy back? Or, you know what, someone's coming in. Just go sit and, and, and over the course of time. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business, I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. And for those of you listening and watching, it's like, you know, when you're starting, I always feel like it's sort of like a, a relationship between a woman and a man. Normally, what a, a woman wants in a relationship is she wants to feel safe. And when you're an assistant or somebody starting out with somebody that big, all they want to do is feel safe. They want to know that you're Everything that happens, everything you touch is done perfectly the way they would want it, sometimes even better the, than the way they want it. And once they start feeling safe, they start throwing you certain little things and say, okay, I'll throw on the script. I'm never, it's not life or death. And then if you come back and you bring something in that's great or say this is great and it is great, 
and he has more trust in you. And that's how it normally works. And so that's how you, so you knew instinctually right away to go the extra mile. Absolutely. And, and as I said, I, I built that trust with him and he had had me be someone's assistant for a while, uh, who worked for the company who was, became a longtime friend of mine, but I was not a very good assistant and no one could read my writing. So I realized that wasn't the, the sort of thing. So I went back and just started spending time with John and really understanding. He just, he basically what I didn't know because I wasn't aware enough at the time was basically paying me to go to graduate school. I was getting to watch someone who was really good at what they do and learn and listen and be part of things. And he, and, and he just trusted me and liked me and, and knew that I cared about it. And so I read every script that came to the door. I made sure I got to meet every single person, spent the extra hours of sort of doing the work that needed to be done to educate myself and to trying to sort of understand what this meant. And we were, they were just starting a show called The Wonder Years of the Time, which was a very expensive uh, show that no one was period and it was single camera. And this was a company they were right. They were, you know, New World did not have a lot of money at the time and they were spending a lot of money to deficit that, this that show. That was uh, Marlins and Black Marlins who and created Black. that. And uh, Mark Hirschfeld, who was a guest on this podcast, uh, was uh, the casting director at the time. Uh, absolutely. And, and Neil and Carol, very talented people, but not ultimately, you know, people that were, wanted to collaborate that much with other people. So they just went off and wrote this script and everyone thought it was brilliant. But at the time, this was a, a new company and, you know, they were, you know, their money was, was was select. They were not a major studio with huge dollars to be able to spend and deficiting all these shows. But everybody thought there was something special there. And then we were doing a show called Sledgehammer, which again at the time was sort of groundbreaking. It was uh, David Rashi as a sort of crazy kind of get smarty kind of character. And then uh, they were doing a show called Tour of Duty, which was sort of a, a Vietnam show. They were shooting in Hawaii. And so all of a sudden all this sort of stuff was happening. There weren't that many people there. So I just was kind of given more and more stuff to do. And... uh you know, I looked up and by the time I was in my mid to late twenties, I was, you know, basically responsible for a lot of stuff and we were out doing a lot of things. And then ultimately as, as, you know, the company was sold to, to Columbia and, uh, we then sort of all moved together and, 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 you know, moved on to sort of running that place. Tell me how you became, went from doing these multitasking roles at New World to becoming the president of Columbia TriStar and then Sony. How does something like that happen? How do you make the leap from somebody who's basically delivering scripts and uh, delivering flowers and uh, to people and, and, and chasing down Paul Rodriguez and Marsha <laughs> Warfield to being the president, the, the, the guy who is running the joint? Uh, it's a combination. There's no perfect answer. As you know, there's no science or, 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 or exact path to any of these jobs. But I, again, I was fortunate enough to have somebody in John who over the years really started to trust me. And as he started to rise up the ranks, he felt he wanted someone that was an extension of him and yet had ideas of their own. And I was always interested in, in what those sort of ideas were. And when, and, and our business, the writer, the TV business is a really writer driven business and it always has been. And, so I really became interested in writers and I cultivated relationships with every young agent in town and, uh, and, and as many writers as I could. And I read every writer and I was just interested in, in what they had to say. And then also interested in coming up with ideas and concepts and things that I felt like weren't done, before, you know, weren't on at the time. And, and as I said, no, no direct correlation other than I really cared about what I did. I worked really hard. Um, and we started to have some success. I made a, uh, I made a deal early on. Uh, there was a comedian named Paul Reiser who had just come off a show called My Two Dads. And, uh, you know, I met with him and liked him. And an agent called me and said, you should meet him. And he wasn't the hottest guy in the world, but I really was a fan of his and thought he was funny. And a lot of times, what's, what, as you know, what's fascinating about um, stand-up comedians who uh, become leads in sitcoms, um, 
one of the major statistics that's unbelievable is that there isn't one instance that I know of of any stand-up comedian who got the lead in their own sitcom that went the show went to syndication at least a hundred episodes that hasn't or hadn't been doing comedy at least ten years. Right. It's like maybe you could say the Wayans brothers, but they weren't really doing stand-up at the time. So any Roseanne from you know Brett Butler to uh, you know Paul Reiser to Seinfeld, Ray Romano, everyone a minimum of ten years perfecting their craft, and a lot of times the people that you make deals with who are comedians are not the hottest people. The hottest comedians are rarely the ones that can get a show going. Right. It's the ones that are gutting it out. It's not that they're not respected. It's just that they've gutted out. They have a point of view, which is the most important thing, which I want you to talk about. And, and they're normally the ones that will make the hit show. And, and, and that point of view word is, is such an often overused word, but it really is true. And, and the guys that had really had something to talk about that was in them and personal to them. There's a lot of funny people. And we've all been to clubs and you're the expert of all experts on this and you know talent. But then when someone really, if you feel like they have something to talk about and a subject matter that interests them. And so I had met with Paul and I liked him and knew him from his other show, but it was never, you know, wasn't a, a benchmark kind of show. And he came in, I'll never forget. And he shut the door and he said, I just got married. And he said, we went on this great honeymoon and I came back and I shut the door to my new, I mean, a new house. I walked in, I looked at my wife and I realized, holy shit, that's the rest of my life. And he said, that's the show I want to do. I want to show when you, when you make that decision, you come home and you, then all of a sudden now you're looking down the barrel of, Oh, wait a minute. It's just us. And now what? There's no handbook for it. There's no, you know, whatever told you how to do it. And now you two people have to sort of say, this is our life together. And you got to create this life. And that, wow, that's a great place to, as a jumping off point for a show. And he really wanted to do it. As a little movie every week and a little play, and we had huge arguments because at the time nobody was doing uh, really single camera shows and they weren't working. They were, you know, people wanted to do sitcoms, but Paul was so scarred from coming off My Two Dads, think it wasn't the quality that he had, had had signed on for, that he wanted to do the show like the, you know in that single camera way, with, you know, without a laugh track and all that stuff. And we fought, we fought, we fought, we fought, and fought, and it took almost two years to get the show developed. And we finally did, and we brought in a great writer named Danny Jacobson, who was a brilliant mind. But not till the hundredth episode party did Paul lean over. He's not a big guy to say, "Well, thank you." We're not one of those. That's just not who he is. And he pulled me aside and said, "I just want to say thank you." And this was years later. I'm like, "What?" He says, "You convinced me to do this as a sitcom, and I made it great." And uh, you know, that was his acknowledgement of you know that at least on some one occasion I was right. Um, yeah, and so and so at that point in time, you know, we talk about the failures and the disappointments, but what's kind of fascinating. Your career up to that point from when you started uh, as a PA up until then, not a lot of disappointment, not a lot of failure. So you're, you're on, your career is on kind of a roll. And even though your dad had told you, listen, I, I don't want you in this business because I know, you know, what's that thing from Batman? Decent people shouldn't live here. Right. So you, you have this thing where, things are going really well and there's not really anything you're sort of saying to yourself, Hey man, this business is, this is a piece of cake, man. It's just one thing I'm rising. I'm rising on the president. So, um, tell me about the first time you got your legs taken out from under you and the, where you really like just, you realized, Holy shit, this business will squash you like a fucking bug. Uh, 
I had this idea at the time I was living, you know, this was during all this time. There was a very hot radio show in Los Angeles and they're still on the air. Their names are Mark and Brian. I don't know if you remember these yes, guys. Yes, of course. And looking back on it now, we were actually really ahead of the reality curve when no one was doing it, but I was just a fan. I listened to these guys every day driving to work and I thought, you know, I'm just going to go meet them. I'm going to call them up. They don't know me. I don't have, they don't have an agent. I'm just going to go and I, and I tracked them down and I got to become friends with them and go watch their radio show. And I said, Hey, there's a TV show on you guys. And this is nobody was doing any kind of reality stuff, certainly no comedy reality. And somehow I sold this show and I put it together and I got all these pieces together and it was called The Adventures of Mark and Brian on, on NBC. And it was a huge deal. And, and the, <laughs> the funny part of the show was I remember we, on a Saturday morning, Brandon Tardock off the late genius and all of his people came over to screen the Talk pilot. Talk about just real briefly to explain to our audience uh, Brandon Tartikoff, what he was doing at the time, because I think it's important. Brandon was the, the chairman of NBC and, and one of the true true great pioneers in the history of the television business. And a visionary. A very young man. A very young man and a, a wonderful human being and, ex and executive. And, you know, at the time they were doing shows like Cheers and Hill Street Blues. I mean, that's quality. And, and, and somehow we snuck this little offbeat comedy of two guys who weren't actors who were going around doing crazy stunts and we we're going to get a TV show on NBC. And we screened the pilot at, uh, at New World on like a Saturday morning. All they came over, Brandon, all the team. And I remember I was in the, in the bathroom in New World and I was in the stall and he, he walked in and he didn't know I was there. And, uh, uh, he and some executives were in there and, and I heard him say, Holy shit, these guys have no talent. What are we going to do with this? And I was like, literally that moment, I thought my career was over. <laughs> and, uh, somehow they put the show on. Did you, did you walk out of the stall? Oh, no, or it's one of those things you literally, I, I spent everything. This was like my thing. I was so proud of him. So excited. I was getting on NBC and I, these guys and I love them. And I just literally at that moment, you, every ounce of you is deflated because the, the guy, and yet even when he said they have no talent, this show's terrible. We're going to put it on the air. And he did. And of course it died. Uh, that, that was more where I thought I literally thought, okay, this is, this is not going well anymore. This, I got to reevaluate. Um, That's but awesome. that, you know, it's the nature of our business. What a great story. Um, can you just real briefly go back and tell me about the casting of the Paul Riser uh, experience? Yeah, it was it was one of those I, things. I so, think that's uh, something that could be interesting for people. So it was one of those things when you're writing a script with somebody and for somebody, and and as I said, the, a great writer and a good friend named Danny Jacobson and Paul, and it took some time for them to sort of get together and, and create this show. But they're two guys writing the show, and clearly the Paul character was really well defined and, uh, and, and we were kind of trying to figure out who was going to be the woman. And it was still kind of under the radar, a small idea, but it was also set up at NBC and they loved the idea of it, but it was only about if we could find that, that magic. And, uh, and I'm totally blanking out on her name, of course, what I will think of in a second. Um, the little woman from Lois and Clark was in Desperate Housewives. Uh, oh my God, I can't believe I can remember her name. will come to me in a second. Was the woman that everybody wanted for the show. And, we took her to NBC to read the scene, but we also, this, someone had said, you know, with bringing a second person, there's this, you know, young actress named Helen Hunt, and she had done this, like, TV movie about, like, high school cheerleaders, football players. Like, she hadn't done that much, but everyone thought she was a, she was a great actress, but she was really kind of there to be the, the stocking horse and not be the one. And I think this is important to talk about the process of how these people get to the position of the studio and the network. And again, uh, uh, an unknown actress versus a, a 800 that, pound gorilla who's basically actress who's done like hundreds of episodes of television and what it takes for somebody to knock you guys on your asses and say, holy shit, 
I don't care that that person's done 300 episodes of television. This is the person. And it's one of those things where if you see magic in a room and, and we, you know, you, you, you actors read together and you do tests like either on tape or in a room with a bunch of people and everyone has an opinion and you're looking for a chemistry and you're looking for a, a spark. And the literally the second, and we had, for whatever reason, we hadn't really seen Helen do it before with Paul, but we'd all liked her and we thought she's very appealing and she seemed so honest and that girl next door and you, everybody could fall in love with her, but you just never know. And literally they did that first scene and it was truly, it was one of those moments in your career you do remember. It was just undeniable with it, just the two of them, you felt like this was a couple that could survive the test of time, that you just knew those people were so deeply connected and, it was Terry Hatcher. Is a, I apologize. It was the woman I couldn't remember before who was a big TV star and, and still is. And everybody said, it's Terry and Paul, and that's just it, and we're done, but we just have to see it. And, and again, the, the dark horse came in being an unknown person, but it was it was undeniable to the 20-some-odd people in that room. Which is one of my favorite expressions, right. undeniable, and, because I feel if you can if you can create that, you, you can't You lose. have a shot. And, uh, and, and, you know, one of those things that like, kind of the rest is history, but they were just so good together and we were able to do that show that really was small and intimate. And, and every person who talked to us about the show over the years later was always the comment was, Oh, that's me and my wife. Oh, my boyfriend and girl, you know, just had that conversation. Well, we had those similar kind of feelings and circumstances. And I think that's a big part of TV. And, and it's, if you can connect to people and relate to them, you have a chance to have a hit. Yeah, and tell me some of the other shows you uh, worked on at Sony and uh, Columbia TriStar that you were, you know, that really made an impact on the country um, and the world. I don't know about the country and the world, but we had some success. Um, you know, we have, uh, I had a great, really fun experience with Fran Drescher and putting the nanny together. And at the time was a, a very successful show. And she very strong going back to point of view. And she knew who she was and what she wanted to do. And she wanted to be... You know, that kind of anti-mame kind of character. And it was, it was a show that ran for seven or eight years and was a lot of fun. Um, Where did you find Fran? Uh, she had done a few things and uh, had, had come to us for a meeting. And again, it was just someone that who really knew who she was. And she knew how to market herself. And she wanted to play that that fantasy character, fish out of water, the poor girl in the big house and taking care of the kids. And, and it, it, it was it was the right idea for her. And it was the right time for the show. And and brought friends of mine in to write it and create it with her and that they were all really connected and clicked and, and, and we had a really good run. Um, a few years later, I was introduced to uh, a comedian named Kevin James who was kicking around. I'm sure you knew him over the years. Another and, example uh, of a, a, a comedian been doing it over 10 years, had been a, a great college comedian, had a tremendous routine that was, to me, I, I love so much about uh, pantomiming the uh, – the, the getting a card for a girl in the store. It was just an amazing piece. But again, a guy who wasn't, wasn't you know, known at all, wasn't out there and it wasn't a household name, but a person at a real point of view. And, uh, and he was in a deal at NBC and, and I had made a, a deal with a writer, another friend of mine, a very talented guy named Michael Whitehorn is one of the great writer producers in the business. And he wrote this thing called the King Queens and he wanted to write it for Kevin. And it was just really complicated because we were supposed to make it at NBC, but NBC did not want to make it. And I really believe in the show and spent a lot of money to, to get it out of NBC and, and, and got CBS to say, Hey, we'll take a shot on this guy in this script. And, you know, it was kind of a flyer. But it was just one of those things where you sort of knew that sort of blue collary guy, a little bit of the anti-hero, you know, kind of thing. And you put him with a woman who married, maybe he married a little bit over his head and, and, you know, kind of thing. But he loved her. You know, and the reason why that show, that show I think really worked besides it being funny and Kevin was a huge talent is he loved that woman and wanted to do anything to make her happy. And, and it goes back to the Flintstones model. It was that same kind of thing. And 
you know, it's a, these, these shows tend to work when you have great actors, but there has to be a writer at the center of it who has a, who has a vision for what the story they want to tell. And, and, and Michael did and, and Fran and, and, and her people did and Danny and Paul did. And, and those are the shows. And I've been fortunate enough to be involved, in, you know, with two and a half men and Chuck did. And those are the ones that sort of have legs and, and can continue because they have something to talk about. One of the things that, you know, if you're a comic listening that was heartbreaking about the business having to do with King of Queens. I remember that the pilot um, episode of King of Queens, um, uh, the father was Jack Carter. It was. And Jack Carter was a legendary uh, stand-up comedian, hadn't done that much acting, but still was had done some work. And, you know, he was probably close to 70 or over 70. And, and, and for him, this was one of the greatest opportunities of his career. And so you have a guy who had a long, prestigious career and one final hurrah and um, goes in, does the pilot, has all great intentions, everything wonderful. This is the way to go out. I'm going to go out on top. And why don't you share what happened? You know, sadly, unfortunately, it happens a lot. It was a it was a, a cast that they loved, and from the very beginning, Les and everybody had wanted Les Moonves, Les Moonves, a chairman of CBS and a friend and a mentor, and 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 he'd always had a vision of what he wanted for the show, but we couldn't get Jerry Stiller because Seinfeld was just kind of coming to a close, and he didn't want to work that hard, and he wanted to live in New York and be back with his wife, and and we tried and we tried and we tried, we couldn't cast the part at the end. Everybody just sort of pushed through the idea of Jack Carter, who was a, an icon, a legend, and a funny man. But it was, well, I'll never, never forget the night of the experience. It was a very uh, close friend of mine, a director named Pam Fryman, who's one of the top directors in the business and incredible. the loveliest, loveliest person, incredible success. Um, we were there till 4.30 in the morning trying to get the performance and Jack and get his lines. It was just one of those things that everybody looked up and said, if we go to series, I don't think we can do this every week because it'll, it'll kill everybody. And because he wasn't, he didn't have his mind, lines just, memorized. It, it just wasn't, it just, it just wasn't clicking. It just was one of those things where you sort of saw the, the, the greatness and the chemistry of, of, of Kevin and Leah and how funny and, and that piece, it just, it felt like it was in a little bit of a different universe. And, uh, you know, so you kind of knew that night that we were going to get that call that, hey, we'll do this, but guess what? We're going to replace it. And when we knew the series was going to be picked up, it enabled us to go back and, and make a deal with Jerry. And originally he was only going to do a certain amount of episodes. But as you know, when artists tend to fall in love with something and they become something and it feels natural to them, then they tend to want to do it more. And then and that's how that show happened. And we had to go back and reshoot the whole pilot. But, it, you know, in the long run, you know, eight or nine years later, it worked out. And that's the lesson is that, you you know, when you go and just because you get a gig, just because you get a job doesn't mean you have the job because you got to go to the pilot. It's like literally the NFL. You know, you, you, you win your division and you're like, hey, we won the division. Oh, shit, we have to play the wild card game. And then you play the wild card game. You're like, we won. And you're like, okay, we have to play the next game until the Super Bowl. And you're in the Super Bowl. Hey, we haven't won the Super Bowl yet. And every time you go into any job, if you're an artist listening, no matter how old you are or how young you are, if you're an executive, every second, every frame, every moment that counts, you have to make count. I think it's really important. And, you know, a big, a big part of our job is we do, you know, a lot of casting things and a lot of our new shows and pilots. And you do table readings. And you do auditions. And, you have to bring it every time because unfortunately there's just so much pressure on these things and the, the, the value and the price to get these things happen. And it's so, unfortunately, so many actors get replaced after table readings and run throughs because they're sort of saving it and waiting, you know, waiting for a tape night or a very famous night. story. Um, you know, is, uh, is, um, 
news radio. Um, for those of you who don't know, um, Ray Romano was cast in his first television role um, as the maintenance guy in uh, news radio. And he went to the table read and um, after the table read, got the call that he was fired and he was replaced with Joe Rogan. So comedians oftentimes experience a lot of, uh, th- and again, the disappointments uh, and the failures. Uh, what's amazing about our business is at the time when you look at it, completely devastating. But then when you look at where your career is after that, like Ray and what happened to him, you almost want to send a fruit basket <laughs> to the people. Worked, at, out, worked out okay for him. At News Radio because it worked out okay. Tell me about leaving Sony and your mentor, John Feldheimer, when Mike Ovitz started his new company and uh, decided he was going to change the face of film and television. And you got the call saying, hey, you're my guy. You're the guy I need. You're out of everybody in this town. You're the only guy I want to run this part of the company. <laughs> Tell me about that meeting. Tell me about what happened. Tell me about how you talked to John and, 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 and that whole process. It was difficult and complicated, but ultimately he, John, was, was supportive and a friend and knew that I had been a little bit restless and wanted to do something a little bit more entrepreneurial because I do believe that there is a certain shelf life to these, you know, corporate jobs and the, the higher up you rise in these jobs, almost the further you get a little bit away from the actual process of doing what you like to do, which is really dealing with material and artists and writers and stuff. And it becomes just by the nature of the job, more corporate and more budget meetings and more projections and more of that kind of stuff. And I really felt like I was getting further and further away and we were incredibly successful. We had, you know, 15, 16 shows in the year and doing pilots every year, tons of pilots every year. And we had a, when we had a great family, but I felt like it, it may have been time. And um, when I was at Columbia Tresa, we had made a deal with uh, two managers named Rick and Julie Yorn, and uh, really smart people and, and people that I liked and trust. And they represented a ton of people going back to the Ted Demi, the late Ted Demi. And we did a lot of stuff together, and they were the first people that Mike hired to because he was going to try to reinvent the management and uh, representation business. And he brought them in because they had a great list of talent and, uh, and, and I had become. Uh, well, who were some of the people that they were representing at the time for our audience? Um, Leonardo, um, was, was Rick's big client for, for, and still is for that years. That would be Leonardo DiCaprio. <laughs> um, you know, he's one of the most <laughs> successful managers in town and he's got a, a very long Cameron Diaz and there was just a ton of filmmakers and, yep. and, and, and the people that they represented and they were interested in television and they came to me and said, you know, we've, we've now grown to like each other, know each other. This is going to be a really big situation and let's try to do this. And, and, and Mike and the way he does and got together with me and, and really. So had you ever, had you had a sit down meeting with Mike alone before? No, I had not. So uh, tell me about that first meeting because I remember when I met him for the first time, he had called me in there and it was the strangest thing because I, you know, I am the kind of person that I, I, I don't, I'm not an anxious guy. I don't, I don't get nervous about anything except of course our podcast together I was very <laughs> nervous about this. but i just i i've always been gone with the flow it didn't matter who i met i i and he called me in to set up a meeting with me and i remember i was like i was like anxious that there was something about it that i was like wondering you know i was like a, i was like that girl before the date putting the clothes out on the bed you know which suit should i wear how should i look should it is this the right way should i wear a tie what should i do and um 
you know, when when I met with him, it was just like uh, it wasn't exactly uh, meant to be a situation where I, I guess I thought it would be more anxious inducing than it was. But still, when you met with him, you were meeting with a man that was like a different kind of person, like a, a guy who, unlike any other person you'll ever meet in the business. And so talk about that. Yeah, The mistake and the legend and what he did was, you know, second to nobody reinvented the entire representation business and, and how artists are, are represented. And it was fascinating. And I was I was terrified, I remember. And we went to a little restaurant. <laughs> so we have something in Yeah, absolutely. We went to a restaurant in Beverly Hills and tucked in some, you know, little private room. And, uh, you know, he has an uncanny, you know him, he has an uncanny ability to make you feel very comfortable and, and is really well researched. And he, again, knew a little bit about my dad. He knew a lot about the TV business. Um, and he immediately just has that ability to make you feel comfortable and starts telling stories. And once you sort of get past, oh, you're sitting with Mike Ovitz, you start, you know, realizing, uh, you know, he knows everybody and, and is connected to every, every situation. And he, can start to pitch what he wanted to do and how he wanted to build out this new company. And, you know, the one thing that is amazing to me is, um, you look at it today and, and, and how connected we all are to our devices and, and, and everything else. And none of this really existed in, in the late nineties and early two thousand. He had an incredible vision of where how content was going to be delivered. And he kept saying to me, I, you know, he had young kids at the time and they don't know the difference between ABC and NBC and this. So they, they want content and they want to get it where they want to get it and they don't care where it's coming from. And, we're going to all have one device and it's the TV is going to be connected to the phones. You're going to be connected to your little device. And again, none of us, there's no iPhones, no Blackberries, none of that stuff. And I'm not a tech, technology person. And yet, but he knew then he knew, that it was he going knew to happen beat by beat where this was going 10 years ahead of everybody. Everybody thought he was crazy. Um, and his idea was to, if you, if you can aggregate enough artists, uh, who can create content that we in this company can own platform of movies, television, music, comedy, and sports, put them all under one roof um, that we as a company can control and distribute this and movies are going to be distributed in a different way and networks, you know, they'll still exist, but there's going to be lots of new ones and different outlets to this. So there was no YouTube. There was no Google. There's no any of this stuff. And the idea was brilliant. And then the, you know, ideas are only as brilliant as they're executed. And the hard part was just trying to do it so quickly, so fast. And the core of the whole company for him was to be built around television because he felt that was the fastest way to get content out there. And, uh, we assemble an incredible team of people, um, and I brought all half the people from Columbia. We made a deal with uh, Columbia that they were going to distribute all of our product, and and I brought an amazing group of people from Darren Starr to Tom Fontana to Paul Haggis to Ellen DeGeneres to Mitch Hurwitz. I mean, the AA people in the business wanted to work with us, and it was and, exciting. And, and you navigated your way with John Feldheimer, which was, uh, again, a very smart thing. You say, oh, I'm going to come here. I'm going to take a lot of my people. So what's the compromise? Well, let's make an overall deal with them where they can distribute the stuff and they'll be happy. And John is a businessman who, who understood the benefits, but also I really believe let it happen because he cared about me and, and, and our, our deep relationship and wanted this to succeed for me. And it was going to expand their business too. And if it worked, it was going to be a win-win for everybody. And, and we had. So here you go in this, in this thing, you know, you're given all the financial resources to make deals with people. You're writing checks to people that are like, you know, extra zeros than you wrote at Sony. You know, it was deep pockets there. It was a big new thing. High profile. You got the, you know, microscope on you. And you talk about uh, disappointment and failure. Tell me how, when, tell me when you knew that this isn't going the way I, I thought it would I, go. I, I can't talk about it in too much detail, but what I can say was, you know, it, it was a, a moment in time that was 
really exciting and I met people and, and did things I never would have before because of Mike and, and his trust and faith in me to let us go build this thing. Um, but the TV business is a really expensive business and he ended up writing a lot of the checks himself and, uh, was very, put a big strain on him and, I was in the room for, and I'm not going to mention names, a couple of big situations where we really thought the company was going to be funded for hundreds of millions of dollars because with tech companies and, and phone companies and all that kind of stuff, people who saw sort of the future and for a, a bunch of different reasons that ultimately didn't happen. And, and ultimately what happened is our success really became the biggest problem because the more shows we got picked up, the more checks we were writing, the more deficits we had to do. This is what was fascinating about the company. It was one of the few instances that I can ever remember this happening where you were unbelievably successful. I mean, you guys were getting shit on the air that even you probably said to yourself, why are they even buying this thing? <laughs> there was a couple I mean, of us. <laughs> it was, it was unbelievable. I mean, literally the hottest company in the world. Everybody was saying, what, what is this, this guy made of gold? I mean, everything was going. But the problem was, again, his company was structured to where he was deficiting a lot of stuff. So how often is there in the world where you can experience so much success, but the success was what was bringing you down. And, and it ultimately, you know, the, the plan was ahead of its time and, and didn't have all the, the, the ultimate structure and financing that, that he had hoped and thought it would be. But, you know, and we, everybody had their ups and downs, but he, still to me, one of the brightest people I've ever met. He, he knew where all this was going. He was incredibly supportive of me and, and the team that I put together and the people I brought in. And, and it, it was complicated and it was, it was deeply sad and hurtful to see this all sort of crash and burn. What would tell me about the day when you found out that it's over? Um, it had been coming for a while because unfortunately the press was so out to, talk about his every move and 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 there was you know a bunch of people in town that did not want this to succeed and so unfortunately the press this was before deadline or any of those things but the the, the la times the new york times the wall street journal it was all writing these stories and we'd be getting reporters calling every day and that just came to a point where the, the burden on him was just so significant every day and then you know but you're also dealing with people who had contracts and, and lives and needed to have paychecks and stuff. So you're dealing on the personal pain. You're dealing with the stress of the company falling apart. You're dealing with the shows having to be funded. And it just, it, it just became too much, but it was a very, it, it was the, the highest of the highs and the lowest of the lows within a sort of literally a 24 month period. Got it. And so then what was your next step? Uh, where'd you go from there? Cause um, here you go, you go into this high profile thing, you leave your mentor and you know, you uh, you leave your uh, significant other. Yeah. Uh, they don't always take you back. No, and it was a, again a very very difficult time. And uh, you, you know, all of a sudden you're not for the first time in you know eighteen twenty years you're not working. What am I going to do? And do you go back into the executive ranks? And uh, there's a very dear friend of mine um, who is my agent and has been a longtime agent named Adam Berkowitz uh, at Creative Artist Agency. And uh, even with all the a tremendous agent, a tremendous agent, and and not someone that I had ever even been that close with before. This, to be perfectly honest, and uh, he called Kim and I and said, "I want to have a meeting with you guys." And we had known him for years, but never hadn't, hadn't done that much together. Although I, I made a lot. Now of called with this. Kim and you, Kim. Kim, I'm sorry, is my wife. And my being partner. your wife and your partner. Now, uh, before you get into the story, just um, 
your wife was talk about what she was doing in her career before you guys got together and decided, Hey, you know, we're married, but we should work together. Just sort of the the full circle back. She, uh, she worked for years, uh, for a man named Fred Silverman, who was probably other than Brandon Tartikoff, one of the, and maybe Grant Tinker, the, the pioneer in the television business, the only man to run all three broadcast networks, the cover of time magazine, We'll go down historically, you know, is one of the most important people in the history of the television business. Was also my father's very close friend. He was an amazing man. And just to tell you a quick story, my first and only experience with Fred was uh, he wanted to do a development deal with one of my clients, and he wanted the show to come together. And he was, you know, saying he was going to get on the air, and he said, "I want you to meet me at the Beverly Hills Polo, whatever the hell it polo was, polo lunch, <laughs> where he used to." And at the time, unfortunately, uh, I had bought a 1980 Ferrari that was very, very unreliable. <laughs> and I'm excited. I'm get. I'm. I'm. I, you know, I have my client get there early. I tell him it's a half hour earlier than it is. I want him to be there. And I'm leaving early. And I'm driving down Pico Boulevard here. And I go over a pothole, and something happens with the Ferrari where it just like steams all over the place. And I'm in the middle of the road, the thing's steaming. And this is before cell phones. I don't have any way to get a hold of Fred. And my car's in the middle of the road. And so I- I'm here, police are coming, and I, I say, Can I borrow a phone? And we don't have phones or whatever. And I miss my meeting with Fred Silverman oh, wow. and going there. And, um, you know, after I finally got to my office, I, I called his office and, uh, and I, uh, he picked up the phone and I was just about to say, uh, Fred, you know, I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, this thing happened with me. And he was like, what the fuck kind of a person are you? Who the fuck are you? I'm Fred fucking Silverman. You don't call. You don't write. You motherfucker. How could I ever work with you? I will never work with you. And he just hung up on me. <laughs> and uh, Fred had a bit of a historic temper. Uh, <laughs> he's calmed down in the later years, but uh, he was that was, my he f- was Fred Silverman. There was no other. You that know? was my first that's experience fantastic. with him. Luckily, he talked to me after that. But, that's uh, a good thing. Uh, but keep going. I'm sorry. So uh, my wife, Kim, uh, worked for Fred for years, and my father and Fred had been doing a lot of stuff together. And so she knew my dad before I ever knew her. And then when I was at Columbia TriStar, um, she had been wanting to find a new job, and I ultimately hired her through a series of people to become the head of comedy development. Now, were you a couple then? No, we didn't even know each other. I hired okay. her just a business. and um, So you dipped your pen worked, in company ink. We worked together for years. Uh, <laughs> we were both in other relationships and uh, <laughs> decided that maybe, you know what, it was time for us to actually you know work together and be, uh, be a couple too, and then we left together to go start ATG. Well, let's go back to that for a second. I know I don't want you to yeah. feel uncomfortable because I think it's, it's this is something that I really wanted to talk about. I wish she, she could make it, but hopefully it'll be another time where she could. Um, very few married couples work together successfully. And so you meet each other, you fall in love, and then you decide to work together knowing that most people who work together um you know look it's hard enough to keep a relationship in this town i wouldn't know anything about that <laughs> but uh <laughs> um but uh I, I, but to keep it together when you're actually working together it's, it's like it's, it's the first question that people ask cuz most people are amazed how would you not kill each other my god you know literally cuz we end up spending you know 18 20 hours a day together and what we always say is we worked together for years very successfully before we were ever a couple. We knew how to work together. We became friends. We always say the work part's easy. It's the, it's when you get home part is the hard part is the, the relationship part. And, 
And I think this business really is a pull on relationships. And when you spend so much time at work with these people, you naturally tend to get close to people. And, and we did. Um, and it's it kept us together. And so our life as producers and executives and as parents, it enables us to be in two different places at one time. It enables us to be able to, you know, it's always, it's, you know, these jobs don't stop. It's not like it was four o'clock on a Friday. You don't get to stop. It's, it's constant. You're Blackberry, you're reading, or you're meeting, or you're doing something. So it can, it, it's just so ingrained into who we are that we can turn it on and turn it off. But it's, it's just, it's, it's an ease for us where everyone else literally been on panels and spoken to things where literally the only question they want to know is how is it possible on God's earth that you guys could live together and work together and do this? But for us, it's just very natural. And when, just real briefly, like, you know, you work with her for a long time. She works with you for a long time. Was there a moment or something that happened where there was a light bulb that went off in both of your heads like, hmm, I wonder what it would be like to have a relationship with this person? And did you remember that moment and how it happened and what, what transpired? There was a few and yes and, and a little personal, but, uh, I think ultimately we just really became so connected as friends. And I think people, people around us saw it before we saw it. And people would sort of say, you know, people look at us and say, assume that we were a couple and we weren't. And, uh, you know, then it just started to make, so wait a minute. I mean, what everybody's sort of saying it is right. We do have this connection and this comfort and this friendship. And, uh, you know, then as I said, we both were in situations that, that ended and uh, we looked at each other and said, we, sh- we should try this. It just felt really, it felt like we had been a couple, even though we weren't for years. Well, it's an amazing collaboration and Thank it's you. very rare in, in this business. I'm so uh, keep going. I'm sorry I interrupted, but I wanted, you were talking about how you guys, uh, the next step after. Uh, so the, the next step, so the middle of the, you know, the, the pain and everybody's writing about it and the company's going under. And then it was a very difficult time that uh, Adam Berkowitz, an agent and, uh, you know, someone we knew, but not a close friend called and said, can we meet with you guys? And, um, he came to us and said, you guys should be producers. This is people like you and, and, and you guys are good at what you do. And the, the idea of non-writing producers was sort of coming back into favor. Um, because there are people who have been executives who are good at putting shows together. And, and, and as you know, so many wonderful writers out there don't like to have to deal with studios and networks and pitching and budgets and stars they want to write. And so the idea of. And the idea of a non-writing executive producer is something that you, you have to be really extraordinary because you're talking about a, a, a network spending an enormous amount of extra money for somebody who's not writing anything and not acting in anything. And, but you proved to yourself and proved to them that you're amazing and you can keep it all together and you're valuable. And then that's how it all comes about. Goes back to what you were talking about at the beginning of you doing action, which was, you know, you, you know, I've always felt in my career as a studio executive that smart, talented people who have a role in helping with the talent or talking to people or putting things together or just have good taste or someone that I know that I could rely on. And we wanted to be that, those people for, for people. And, um, you know, there seemed to be a need in, in comedies at the time. And, and Adam just said, you guys should do this and we're going to represent you. And guess what? We've already basically made a deal for you at Warner Brothers. And we're like, <laughs> what? And, uh, uh, Bruce Rosenblum, a very dear friend of ours and, and, and who was running Warner Brothers and Peter Roth, another close friend had been people that I knew when we're, we're peers and, and, you know, we're rival studio heads and, but we always really liked each other. And they just welcomed us with open arms and said, come over here and, and, and this should work and we'll help you build your company. And, uh, and we ended up staying for five years and, and had, you know, many shows on the air, but obviously one that stuck that did really well for all of us is Two and a Half Men. And, and take us, uh, into Two and a Half Men and, and, uh, tell us about the, how that came about, the casting process. Was Charlie Sheen 
you know, he was already, it was an offer made to him to do it. And that was it. That was the guy they identified. Or was he in a process where you were looking at a bunch of other people? It's kind of a long, complicated story. Uh, well, that's why we're here. Right? <laughs> but I'll, I'll, I'll make it short as I can. Um, but it's a good story. So it, because it goes to, you have to believe in yourself. And if there's something you, you see and have a vision for, you have to do whatever it is in your power to try to make it happen. And this was kind of a, a famous story and sort of how this came together. So we, we're doing stuff at uh, at Warner Brothers, and, and an idea had been brought to us that we needed to try to figure out how to sell. And there's a very dear friend of ours uh, who runs comedy at CBS named Wendy Trilling, who's been a longtime friend and supporter of ours. And we called her up, and we just said, you know, we've we got this deal and this idea, and we just kind of need you to buy it. I just, you know, don't ask any questions. We haven't put it together, but just trust us. And she's like, I love you. We had done King of Queens. We had done The Nanny. We had a lot of success together. She says, I want to work with you guys this year. If this is the one you want to do, then I'll just try. Yes, it's it's a it's a sale based on not much. A just, sale for a pilot script. script. A sale for a pilot script. She says, just put it together and come back to me. And uh, Which for a network is literally like, uh, depending on the writer, is is like cab fare. You know, they just, you know, sometimes even at, when I say cab fare, it could be 75000 to like, God knows, 300000 or more. But still for them, with all the millions they have committed for development. Right. But also unheard of without literally any detail just That's to right. say, I, I, that shows I, I care enough that about she, you guys she had for you. she had for us and we had for her. And she said, great, just go sort of put it together. And we started looking for writers and, so, and, and, and to try to sort of find this idea. We were talking about an idea about two brothers and, um, it took a long time and we couldn't really find somebody. And, uh, Chuck Lurie, who was one of the big, big writer producers in, in, in town and had tremendous success with Roseanne and Sybil and Grace Under Fire and all these shows was under contract at Warner Brothers. I knew him a little bit because I offered him a tremendous amount of money when I was at Sony to come work over there and Warner Brothers paid him more money and he ended up going to Warner Brothers. So I called him. And uh, said, "Would you hear something?" And uh, and and he did, and uh, he was intrigued. But he also was coming to the end of a very big deal, and uh, well, I was told under no uncertain circumstances am I allowed to talk to him, and that, that we need him to focus on the thing that he was doing, and please don't bother him. And um, but of course, you of course didn't I listen did. to most I people. I didn't listen, <laughs> and uh, and I just kept calling Chuck and and a very dear friend of mine named Bob Roder, who's an agent I had just tremendous respect for. A I think tremendous one the, uh, literary, one of the greatest, the greatest television minds in the history, and was a, another mentor to me. Who just you know he and I had a lot of success together, and he just always respected me, and he represented Chuck and. And what I just kept saying to everybody was that every time I would meet with Chuck, and it goes back to what we were talking to before, he would get inspired about this idea, even though he would keep telling me all the reasons he couldn't do it, but he would then be pitching and talking and telling me why, you know, about his mother and his relationship and, and about divorce and why no one is dealing with the realities of custody and going back and forth and how hard it is and all that kind of stuff because, you know, people, why, why hasn't that been done? And every time we would get together, he'd reluctantly get together and we would go have breakfast on, uh, on Montana he would keep spinning further. And so I sent a couple of famous emails to a bunch of people saying, you have to let me do this. Like, this is, this, this is going to be great. This is the show that will go ultimately behind Raymond that you haven't been able to find. You have not been able to find that companion piece. Please let me do this. And it just kept coming back. No, 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 no. And, uh, it was just a long series of hurdles. I ultimately offered to write a check for the, for the script myself. I said, I'll take you all out. Just let me pay it. If you just let Chuck do it. And they didn't know what to do with that information because no one had ever offered to write a personal check to pay for a script like that when you're talking about Time Warner and CBS. So they all just kind of get rid of me, just said, fine, but just keep it under the radar. Don't talk about it. Just kind of go do it. And uh, Chuck then said to me, I'll, I'll do it, 
but I need to co-write it with a, with a friend of mine who's kind of out of work at the time named Lee Aronson, and he needs health insurance, so I got to have his name. who's was a great writer who I had had to fire off a show not too long ago, so I had to go back to Lee and say, hey, let's work together again. But I always thought Lee was a really talented writer, which he is and was. And uh, then Chuck said to me, uh, but I really want to write this for Charlie Sheen. He's out on the market. He'd done one year of Spin City. And uh, Again, another example of an actor or somebody for television that wasn't necessarily hot, but that you could tell was ready to do something and, and, special. And they had huge expectations for him. They wanted like, someone to put up a check for like a million or two million dollars, which nobody was going to do. And, and, and so we ended up getting him in a room with Chuck, and I called his manager, called his agent. And he was about to sign on to a show at NBC that literally the next day. And, and Chuck had said to him, just give me two weeks. Give me two weeks and I'll have a script on your door. And to, you know, to his credit and his, his people's credit, they said, well, we, we, of course we should wait. Let's wait and see what they come up with because it sounded kind of funny. And, um, I did. And, uh, and it just was one of those things that just went very far under the radar and no one really knew about it. And at the time, Warner Brothers was doing six other comedy pilots with CBS. Um, this was not on anybody's radar. It was the last one to be picked up. We sold it really late, like in February. And which is, it, which is unheard of because normally what you do is you sell shows between, let's say, July 4th and maybe up until Thanksgiving. Sometimes you sell some things in December before the break. Very rare. But I've never heard of anything selling for a network. In February, because that's normally when they're some they're shooting pilots sometimes during that time. And, and they just and it's one of those that came together because Chuck had such a strong vision. The reason why I pushed so hard for it because I just every time I spoke to him, I knew that it was going to be great. And there just there are those moments in time in your career when you just sort of know that if you can push to make this happen and navigate the minefield, that it, it has a chance to be great. If the, the stars have to align, everything has to come together. But when I when I heard him talk about it, when I saw that script and. When there was interest from Charlie, then we had to go make his deal, which was crazy. But you just knew. You just knew there was a voice and a character and, and, and Chuck. It was coming out of him to write about divorce and about, uh, you know, his relationship with his mother and different women over the years and Charlie's his experiences. And so I really put my neck on the line to, as we, to, to push it to make it happen. And then, you know, the same story we told about Helen before, you know, John Cryer's name came up. We had to find the Alan character. And, you know, we were all told under no uncertain circumstances, don't bring him in. He's done 18 pilots and 15 series and none of them ever worked. And yes, he's talented and yes, he's funny, but, you know, it's, it's, it's not going to happen with him. So don't even do it. And, and we had seen it in a room and we, we literally, it was that same moment of Helen and Paul. We saw John and Charlie read the scenes together and it felt like they were brothers and it was exactly what was in Chuck's head. And we called back and said, you guys are going to have to suffer through this and see it. And it was one of those, again, rare moments. It was undeniable. You walked in that room and that old basement on uh, Fairfax over there and, and those two. And the same day, and I'll never forget this too, that uh, and Jimmy Burroughs was there. We brought him in to direct. We brought this little kid in. We only brought one kid in. Jim Burroughs, probably the greatest television director of all time. In the history of, 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 of comedy television. And we brought this little kid in named Angus T. Jones, and he had done a movie called The Rookie, and, and you know, he wasn't used to it. He was like nine, eight or nine years old, and he kind of laughed through his whole audition, and everybody said, are you guys sure? And, and Chuck looked at, at Les and everybody else and said, yeah, this kid can do it. He's going to be great. I don't want to see any more kids. This is the kid. And uh, they had the confidence enough to say, John was great, and this little kid's adorable, and, and hopefully he can do it. And uh, it was just one of those things, again, as the pieces started to come together, you started to feel like you had a chance to do something special here. Well, let's talk about when the pieces don't come together and they start falling apart and uh, through circumstances beyond your control when you're a producer. Take us through uh, the most unbelievable situation that ever probably happened in recent memory in television was the Charlie Sheen situation. 
and how you got through that and how the show has survived through that. Not only that, but the Angus situation as well. I mean, it's it's unbelievable that the show is like Teflon. It's bulletproof. I, I really say it's a testament to Chuck. I mean, really, this was at, at, at that point in time. And, you know, there's there's a couple of those people throughout the history of time who have the tenacity and the ability to, to sort of make things happen. And he's a genius at what the form that he does. I mean, he's one of the few, you know, there was Norman Lear as we were growing up. And then truthfully, you know, probably Chuck is the other one who's just he's, he's a, a brilliant person in that form. And those were painful years for everybody. And we really... We're sort of to the being very candid. We're, we're off to the side of it, and and it was hard because we had a very strong relationship with Chuck, and 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 became really fond of Charlie over the years, and and it was a Charlie was a very diligent worker and professional and nice to everybody, and but clearly had a problem, and the problem that you you've seen and experienced over the years with different artists and things, and that's something that even though it's hidden and and pushed the side, sometimes it just it, it can't be kept down for that long, and and the the sad part is because you saw some of the you know when you spent now eight years with someone almost nine months a year and you're with them days every, you know, hours on end and you care about people and you see them starting to self-destruct, it became sad. And then it took a whole, you know, very dark turn on, on every, and it was very hard on everybody. And cause you know, that, that moment where you, there's always those moments in anything, relationship, business or personal, where certain things keep going and going and going. And you, you try to say to yourself, okay, we can save this. This can be better. Uh, it's going to be better. And, there's that one day that you all come together or one person comes together where you just say, we have to cut the cord. Yeah. Do you remember that day and what, what, what happened and how, uh, how it came about? It's just, it's, again, stuff because of so many different situations that can't really be gone into in depth. Um, but it, it, it was really what I remember being a sad day for everybody. It was really what ultimately was people that, you know, we had, all done this together and gone, you know, not many times in your career is there something of this magnitude that has this much success and, and this much, uh, upside for everybody. And it was huge to, to Chuck and it was huge to Charlie and it was huge for us and it was huge for CBS and it was huge for Warner Brothers. And, and, and everybody felt it just saddened and then they felt angry and then it just, it took to a whole different place with all that crazy internet stuff. And that's, that, that's where it got too far where you you know usually in these situations you figure out a way to pull it back in and you get everybody back together and i've done a lot of that over my career and you put everybody in a room and you realize all the all the greatness and you try to keep it together but what that was the sort of the point where it just got too too crazy for everybody and, and, and as an artist you know here's the example of what can go wrong as an artist here's an example how you can get in your own way and mess up your career and angus has that example firsthand he's there he sees everything going on Yet he has all the examples in front of him, and then he doesn't make the exact mistake the way Charlie made it, but he made a similar mistake where he went out and showed a side of himself that damaged him and... He and, lost the gig. And, and ultimately also, you know, the sadness when you've seen a kid who, you know, you've known since he was eight years old and you've watched him grow up in front of your eyes and become sort of part of your extended family. And it was, you know, always a really good kid and lovely parents and, and, and Chuck and everybody took really good care of him. And, you know, it was, it was sad to see. And, uh, you know, you, 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 your first instinct is always like, Oh my God, what happened? Like, I, I, I care about this person, you know, and you, why, why is this happening? And it seems it's not the person as it was with Charlie during those times. And you saw with Angus, it's not the person I've known every day for years and years, seen every week, week after week and spent time with, excuse me. Um, so when you see that sort of self-destructive side, 
you know, your first instinct is, my God, this is tragic. But then your second instinct became, you know, the, the business part of it and people's jobs and careers and, and a lot of money on the line. And, and everybody has, you know, responsibility to try to pull themselves back together. And sometimes it just, the sad part is in both those situations, it crossed that line and it crossed a line where it could not be dialed back, unfortunately, where the actions were, were, were too, too, too harsh to, to then say, you know, we can forgive this and get past it. And people took it very personally. People feel like, again, your first instinct is you want to protect them and help them. And your second instinct is how can they do this to us? And, and we have to protect this, this thing. And unfortunately, that's what happened in both situations. Different circumstances, but ultimately the same result. Cool. So I'd like to, this is like sort of, I'd like to, uh, close this off with like a, a segment I like to call, uh, holy shit moments. And I'd like to ask you a few things that I, um, that I think will be meaningful to the audience. Um, what's your proudest professional moment? Uh, that is an excellent question. Um, th- there have been a bunch, but I, I would say moments in time when early on and standing on that stage at the two and a half men and just watching that audience sort of uh, just being so part of it, watching those characters come to life. And even though we, we, we didn't write it and other people do and, and, and made, made that we were very responsible for making this happen. And it was just, you know, when you look at it now, we're going into season 11 when the show's all said and done, whether it's this year or hopefully keeps going. I think we're now the third longest running live action sitcom in the history of the television business behind Ozzy and Harriet and maybe my three sons. I mean, that's, that's something we're pretty proud of. And I have to say, I've had, I've had a lot of very fortunate moments in this business. And really it's, you know, it's about the people you work with more than anything else. But, um, it was, it was, it was a great thing for all of us and continues to be. Your biggest disappointment professionally. Uh, I think the whole ATG thing not not working out ultimately was a was a really you know there was a, a lot of burden and pressure on our shoulders and 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 really called in a lot of people and and to, to do this and the quick rise and that the, even the, the really quick destruction was that was a, a huge disappointment it was a really it was a, it was a hard time. One of the things I thought you were going to say um, there is something that we have sort of a six degrees of separation. Um. I have a client, Dan Adut, that uh, booked a, a, a pilot of uh, yours uh, a called a Friend Me. And um, and uh, during that show, we lost a, a great friend in the business, Alan Kirschenbaum, who, uh, who took his own life. And then uh, to me, like, uh, I... I I looked at you one day, you know, after, because I was doing something with you and I, I, it was around that time and I, you know, you could see the toll that, uh, that the business has taken on you. But what I was amazed about, I remember that day that I was around you, I felt to myself that you almost were in self-preservation mode where you were like, look, this isn't my fault. This is something that this man struggled with. It's not something that happens all of a sudden. I put a lot of work in the show, but the work doesn't mean anything because it's a friend that's somebody I believe in. And when you see somebody who you feel helpless that you can't save, and sometimes you don't even know the extent of how difficult it is, and then one day you turn around, they're gone. That's just uh The fun part is when you said what was your... Uh, hardest moment or darkest moment I was thinking sort of professionally and, and because our business is such a blur of personal and professional, I, I looked and that is one of my darkest moments in my life. And I don't look at it as, as a business thing. Um, he was such a dear friend of mine and someone that, 
you didn't, if you had said to me of all the people you've met in the history of your time in the business, who, who was likely to have that happen to it, he would have been the last person. And he, someone that was so close to him was just such a personal friend that I don't even think of it as a business situation anymore. It was so that would you say if, if someone asked what was one as, as your personal disappointments or greatest hurts, uh, his passing and the tragedy of his life ending was one of the greatest pains and hardships that I've ever been through, not just as a business. Yes, we were doing a show, but that became irrelevant. It was someone that I so deeply and Kim cared about and had such a history with and so many good times and memories and things that, that, you know, I'm at the park playing basketball with my son and get the call that, uh, you know, that happened. It was, it was an outer body experience. And I, you know, unfortunately something I, I think about him every day and I literally just talking about him yesterday with someone. And I, to this day, I, I, I can't believe that he's not here. And that's just, that is a tremendous personal disappointment beyond professional. Yeah. Um, switching uh, gears slightly, uh, to these final two questions. Sure. Um, talk about to our audience and our viewers as a young executive, um, what advice do you have to go from a high school in California or in Peoria, Illinois, or wherever it is, and you have a dollar and a dream for the business to work your way through this and, 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 and this business and get to the point where you are today? And then the follow-up question is, what advice do you have for uh, young actors, actresses, stand-up comedians, sketch performers on what they have to do to break through and get the attention of people like yourself to let them know that they can, too, uh, break through and make a big difference in this business? Um, a question we're asked all the time, and, and again, no perfect answer to it, but I, I will say a lot of times, and you know, I meet with a lot of kids who come out of schools and this and that. I say you, you got to start somewhere. You got to you got to get in somewhere. You got to find find a person or people who will let you be part of an experience. And once you, get, I always say the hardest, the two hardest jobs are getting the first one and then sort of make that first job. And and whatever whatever it is that you decide that you want to be at or you can get in, absorb everything. And really, you know, I, I always found for me. I wasn't sure exactly what I wanted to do, but I started listing things that I didn't want to do. I knew I didn't want to be an agent. I knew I didn't want to be, you know, on a set and be a director. And, and so I started to find the path that I liked, which was working on ideas and developing material. And, you know, the, the, the exciting part about today is there are so many different ways. I met with these two kids this morning, just happened to two young guys. They're internet sensations. And they said to me, look, we, we're too scared to go through traditional process. We thought, wait a minute, we can go take a camera and go shoot some stuff and, you know, shoot some stuff and put some stuff out there. And, they have the number five most viewed internet guys and they've got, you know, show. And it's like anybody can do that. And if you have a, a dream or a vision or a passion, but I always say to the writers, everyone's like, if you're right, go write, write people, write material and get it to people. It'll get read, get it to the people, but don't sit there and feel precious about it. Like if you're right, if you're an actor, do scenes and do workshops and go do plays and, and, and work on your craft. You, we start talking about the standups. It's, you know, the guys that, you know, did one set of the improv and got a development deal and not the guys that made it. It's the guys that night after night after night did the cities and the tours and things and perfected that voice and that craft. I, I don't think it's any different. If you want to be a director, you can take, you know, your cell phone and go shoot a movie these days and cut it on your home computer. You can, you can, you can write something and shoot it. Or if your friend's an actor, I mean, there's just, there's many more opportunities available now than there, than there was. 
the traditional corporate path of, hey, I want to go run a network or a studio, not necessarily that easy to do, and there's no exact science to it. Um, but whatever it is that interests you, you have to commit yourself to doing that. And it's, you know, it's hard. I would be scared as a young person starting out today, but yet I look at it from my agent point of view and say the opportunities to get noticed and the potential to put your stuff out there. There was no, there was no American Idol or those shows, and that's where the music business now. You can get discovered in those ways. So I just, I feel like the opportunity now is kind of unlimited. But it is, is important, whatever it is, that thing that interests you, to go full steam ahead and pursue that. You know, and most of our things about writers, I always tell people, go write, put it down, and it will evolve. It will get better. Get it to people who can give you help and thought and guidance. But you got to start somewhere. Well, Eric, thank you for taking so much time. You're amazing. You are first class oh, all you, the Brad. time. It's a pleasure to see you. I love this. I hope thank we can do it again me. sometime. Uh, you've been listening to uh, Industry Standard. And uh, listen, if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. They say it's the glory I'll scream your name and Put you on shoulders Walk you to fame You'll get all the money Drive that fancy car All the people love you Cause you're going for Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over So it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley A fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast. Leave a comment and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.